This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep practical wisdom. Tonight I'd like to explore... (coughs) some elements of the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right view. In Pali, this is samaditi. And it would be hard to overestimate the importance of understanding this, because right view sets the direction for our entire path. Now, if we're on a journey no matter how long or how difficult the journey is, if we're heading in the right direction and we keep going, we'll inevitably reach the destination. If our direction is correct and we keep on going, we will inevitably reach the goal. But if we don't have the right direction, Even with the strongest aspirations and the strongest efforts, we could be wandering a long time, you know, and not fulfill those aspirations. So the Buddha was very clear about this in in many ways. He said that just, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the precursor to the rising sun, so is right view the dawn, so is right view the forerunner and precursor of the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, those truths that liberate the mind. So just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor of the rising sun, right view is the precursor and the forerunner to our understanding of those truths which actually liberate us. The right view can be understood from two different aspects. First, it is described as a particular function of the mind. And that is very particularly 
the mental factor of wisdom. So in one way, we could say right view is the wisdom factor of mind. And the function of wisdom, the way wisdom manifests in our minds, is to illuminate what's arising so we can understand and clearly know things as they are. So you could think of wisdom in the mind as the turning on of a light in a darkened room. If the room is dark, we can't see what's in it. We don't have any understanding of what's in the room. Turn on a light, we can then see what's there and actually continue our investigation, our exploration of whatever is arising. So the first meaning of right view is this wisdom illuminating function in the mind. It's the wisdom mental factor. The second aspect of right view is its objective content. That is, what is it we learn from turning on the light? What do we learn from wisdom? So again, the Buddha... I love these questions because the Buddha gives such direct answers. (laughs) What bhikkhus is right view? And remember, in this context, we're all bhikkhus, those on the path. What bhikkhus is right view? It is the understanding of dukkha, its causes, its cessation, and the way leading to the cessation, the ending, the putting down of suffering. Sound familiar? These, these are the essential teachings of the Buddha in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha emphasized again and again the importance of right view and coming to an understanding of these Four Noble Truths. He says, Bhikkhus, there is no single factor so potent in promoting the good of beings as right view. So this is, this is an essential part of the path. This is not some peripheral uh, teaching. There is no single factor so potent in promoting the good of beings as right view. <clears throat> so it's important to understand that the right view the Buddha is talking about is not something that we should believe. It's not a question of belief in it. It's a question of understanding it. It's a question of seeing it and realizing it for ourselves. So most of us begin with probably a conceptual or intellectual understanding of the Four Noble Truths. But then through our practice, you know, through our investigation, through our growing wisdom, we begin to have a more and more direct and intimate and first-hand experience of dukkha, its causes, the end, and the way to the end. So in this way, we could think of right view as both the beginning and the end of the path. You know, we start with just some intellectual or conceptual appreciation. Oh, this sounds like it might be right. 
you know, and we understand it on that level, but then in our practice it reveals to us personally, intimately, the truth of it. We see that they really are four noble truths. <clears throat> so in case you're still doubting this at all, <clears throat> just reflect on <clears throat> all of our, and I think universal, <clears throat> experience of the truth of dukkha, the first noble truth. Has anybody not experienced that? You know, the body gets older, it gets sick, it ages, it finally dies. The mind suffers through a whole range of afflictive emotions, you know, fear and anger and jealousy and pride and envy, and greed, and restlessness, and the list goes on and on. And we're all familiar at different times with these afflictive emotions, the emotions or mind states that cause suffering, that are suffering. And the Buddha went on, he gets more and more uh, specific, he says, association with the unpleasant is dukkha. Did any of you associate with the unpleasant today? <laughs> For a moment or two? Separation from the pleasant is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. Getting what we don't want is dukkha. We're all familiar with these experiences. These are not, <coughs> these are not unusual. And then the Buddha sums up this first noble truth in an even more fundamental and comprehensive way. And this is what I'm about to share, these teachings, <clears throat> uh, is tremendously simple and tremendously profound. We could spend, I think, months unpacking this next sentence. Buddha said, in brief, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. You know, so he goes, he starts with association with unpleasant, separation from the pleasant, but then in brief, the five aggregates <coughs> subject to clinging, or the five aggregates of clinging, are dukkha. So why is this? <clears throat> why does he sum up this first noble truth in this very simple and direct way? Because these five aggregates, and I'll be going through them a little bit, they constitute what it is that we call self. Everything that we call self, just as a concept, as an idea, can be understood as being nothing other than these five aggregates, which are, as I think most of you know, the material elements, you know, or rupa, feeling, feelings, vedna, that taste of things being pleasant or unpleasant, <clears throat> perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. So this is the sum total of what we are, what we experience, what we call self, is nothing other than these five aggregates. And they are all in a state of constant change, constant flux. So there is nothing in the nature 
of these aggregates, of these constituents of our experience, which is all of our experience, there's nothing apart from them, there's nothing in them which is reliable. Because of their constant change, constant flux, really on, on a very meditative level, on their momentariness. There's nothing in these aggregates that are reliable that can provide a place of lasting peace, of lasting security. And then, of course, the more we see that, we can understand that the more we cling to that which in its very nature is unreliable, the more we grasp at that which in its nature is changing, the more we suffer. I mean, that's not certainly hard to understand intellectually, but I think we've all had experiences of that in our lives and practice. <clears throat> so one time the Buddha was giving a discourse to uh, some monks and nuns, and Mara, the embodiment of illusion, you know, who often shows up at these times. So he saw that the Buddha was busy enlightening all these people and he wanted to, you know, disrupt things. So he created some kind of disturbance, you know, and the, the monks and nuns, the unenlightened ones, you know, were getting all shook up by Mara's disturbance. And so then the Buddha gave a Mara dispelling verse. So we can all use this when Mara attacks. Because, but it's, it's, I find this one really, uh, the image of it for me is so powerful. He said, forms, sounds, tastes, odors, tactile sensations, and all mental objects. Okay, so these are all the things that arise in our experience. Forms, sounds, tastes, odors, sensations, and all mental objects. <clears throat> this is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun, having transcended Mara's realm. So I love, that, I love that image, the terrible bait of the world, because in my mind I kind of imagine, you know, all these momentary experiences arising with little hooks on them, you know, and we're like fish, you know, <laughs> biting on the hook, clinging to this, clinging to this, clinging to this. So as long as we are biting on the hook, biting on the bait, we are ensnared in Mara's realm the realm of what's impermanent and unreliable. <clears throat> but when one has transcended this, meaning the mind that's not clinging, not biting on the bait, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly, like the sun having transcended Mara's realm. <clears throat> 
So we can experience our clinging and attachment to the aggregates in, in many ways. But just one simple example which may illustrate just in one arena how we can get attached or cling to all five of the aggregates, and that is in examining and investigating how we relate to the body. You know, so this is a very clear, obvious part of our experience. So in just the simplest way, you know, if we're attached, you know, to looking and feeling young, how is the mind going to be as it ages and gets older? Just think of how much advertising and production in this country is devoted to this attachment, to the attachment of people wanting to look young, you know, and beautiful like all the advertisements, as if all these products will actually make us look like that. But a tremendous amount of activity you know, a cultural activity is devoted to this attachment. So if we're attached to a particular form of the body, that's, that's attachment to rupa, you know, the first of the aggregates. If we're attached to the pleasant feelings that come at different times, you know, in our experiences of being in a body, if we're attached to those pleasant feelings, then that's attachment to Vedana, the second aggregate. We're often attached to our perception of the body. And here it might be the perception of looking young, you know, of how we're seeing it. It was very interesting in my early years of practicing in India. You know, we were practicing... Uh, Mostly in Bodhgaya, I was at the Burmese Vihar, and then sometimes in the summer months, we'd go up to the mountains. But there were very few mirrors. And so, quite in contrast to just kind of the normal life here, where almost every day we're looking in a mirror, for one reason or another, there there weren't very many mirrors. And it was amazing how the attachment, kind of even the thought of looking a certain way, it diminished tremendously. And so we could really see <clears throat> that attachment to perception falling away in that context. And then in contrast, how that's fed, you know, in, in our society. We become attached to the many thoughts and emotions <clears throat> and mind states and volitions regarding the body. Now, how many thoughts and emotions are created in our relationship to this body? We like it, we don't like it, we want it to be this way, we want it to be that way. And we can get totally <clears throat> caught up and identified, and sometimes with very disastrous consequences. I mean, people can get way out of balance in their lives in their attachment to and belief in all of these thoughts and feelings about the body. What is this? This is clinging <clears throat> or attachment 
to the aggregate of mental formations. And then there's the subtle identification and attachment just with consciousness, with that which is knowing all of this. So we can see in this not uncommon experience of and relationship to the body, just in all these different ways, we can see the clinging to the aggregates, to the five aggregates at work. Now, one of the most amazing things, and it's really so surprising, that in the face of recognizing and on some level knowing the truth of impermanence, the truth of change. So this is not an esoteric truth. This is not something that's hidden. It's all around us and we know it on on some level. But what's so amazing that in the face of this very obvious truth, the pattern of clinging, the habit of clinging, remains so strong. So then one might might ask, well, what is fueling this habit? Given that impermanence really is so clear, and yet the pattern of holding on is so strong, something must be feeding it, something must be fueling it. So one of the things that fuels it is one particular aspect of wrong view. And it's an aspect of wrong view that most deeply keeps us bound to samsara. And in Pali, it's called Sakaya Ditti, or wrong view of self. And sometimes this is translated as uh, the wrong view of the identity view or personality view. But it really has to do with the belief in some self or I that's behind everything, some kind of unchanging uh, being to whom the aggregates are happening. So it's easy to think about this wrong view of self, of identity belief. You know, we can hear it or read about it and kind of contemplate it as some kind of Buddhist philosophical position. But then we miss the critical importance and the critical impact of this wrong view in our lives. So again, the Buddha had a very strong statement about this. He said, bhikkhus, I see nothing so blameworthy as wrong view. Wrong view is the most blameworthy of all things. So that's a very strong statement. Of all all the terrible things in the world, he's saying wrong view is the most blameworthy. So why does the Buddha make such a, such a strong statement about this? <clears throat> when we look, we can see that so many of 
our unwholesome actions, you know, based on greed and, and hatred and delusion, so many of these unwholesome actions with their attendant karmic results. So these actions are not happening in isolation. Each of these actions produces a result in our lives. So many of the unwholesome actions that we are engaged in are rooted in this wrong view of self. Now, as long as this view of self is the central and organizing principle of our lives, what do we do? We spend a huge amount of energy trying to gratify this self or defend it or hold on to it or protect it. So much of our activity revolves around this idea. And a lot of this activity then is rooted in unwholesome states of mind. And what's so interesting that all of this very powerful karmic activity is revolving around something that isn't even there. You know, and so this is the great power of delusion. It's the great obscuring power of wrong view. So I'd like to read you something. Um, It can be very surprising where wisdom pops up. You know, it, it can come from many sources. So this piece of wisdom happens to come from it's something in between a spy book and a detective book. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's not either, either one of them. <clears throat> but it's a book by John Burdett, uh, and it's called Bangkok Tattoo. Uh, and the main, the main character is a Buddhist detective. Okay, so this is, this is the author. You see, dear reader, speaking frankly without any intention to offend, you are a ramshackle collection of coincidences held together by a desperate and irrational clinging. There is no center at all. Everything depends on everything else. Your body depends on the environment. Your thoughts depend on whatever junk floats in from the media. Your emotions are largely from the reptilian end of your DNA. Your intellect is a chemical computer that can't add up a zillionth as fast as a pocket calculator. And even your best side is a superficial piece of social programming that will fall apart just as soon as your spouse leaves with the kids and the money in the joint account, or the economy starts to fail and you get the sack, or you get conscripted into some idiot's war. To name this amorphous morass of self-pity, vanity, and despair 
self is not only the height of hubris, it is also proof, if anyone needed, that we are above all a delusional species. We are in a trance from birth to death. Prick the balloon and what do you get? Emptiness. Take two steps in the divine art of Buddhist meditation and you will find yourself on a planet you no longer recognize. Those needs and fears you thought were the very bones of your being turn out to be no more than bugs in your software. I mean, that really says it all. (laughs) But in case detective novels don't speak to you, in more classical terms, this is returning to the Buddha's words. saying the same thing. Suppose bhikkhus, a dog tied up on a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post or pillar. So too, uninstructed worldlings, that is, people not practicing the Dharma, regard form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, consciousness as self. They just keep running and revolving around form, around feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, around consciousness. As they keep on running and revolving around them, they are not freed from them. So this is taking these aggregates to be self. It's like just running around and around. As we keep on running and revolving around them, we are not freed from them. Not freed from birth, aging, and death, which is what characterizes these aggregates. Not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Not freed from suffering. Do you see how clear the Buddha is being about this understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the wrong view of self? And what is it that constitutes what we call self is the five aggregates. And if we're not seeing that clearly, we take each of the aggregates to be self and we are just running and revolving around them subject to birth, old age, disease, and death. So here the Buddha is laying out, you know, so clearly the first two noble truths, dukkha and its cause. So it's helpful to remember uh, the Buddha's challenge to us regarding these truths. So he said, the truth of dukkha is to be understood and its causes to be abandoned. So that really points us in the direction of, okay, how do we approach 
in our practice working with these truths. So the truth of dukkha is to be understood. The truth of the causes of dukkha, obviously, the causes are to be abandoned. So the question, I think, then, is how do we go about doing this? You know, because that really is the essence of our practice. By understanding dukkha and abandoning its causes, we actually come to realize gradually the third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha. And so this brings us from that conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths to what the Buddha called the right view that is noble, taintless, super-mundane, a factor of the path. So the instructions are very clear, but as we all know, they require a great deal of patience, a great deal of practice and interest and exploration of the nature of our experience. If we want to integrate and fulfill our understanding of these truths in our lives. So this is not, this is not a superficial undertaking. You know, meditation on this level is not a hobby. We're trying to explore the very essence of what this life is about, of how suffering is created, about how suffering can end. So it takes a huge commitment. You know, and a lot of what we have to learn is how to undertake the effort in a balanced way. But it's not superficial, and understanding doesn't come from superficial attention. Okay, so how do we practice it? Again, the Buddha was very clear. He said, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. So abandon in this sense means let go of attachment to it. When you have abandoned it, let go of attachment, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. And then this next image he uses is kind of a simile I found really helpful in my practice. He says, suppose, bhikkhus, people were to carry off the grass, the sticks, branches, and foliage in this jetta's grove, the name of a special grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. Okay, so just, just imagine somebody coming into the woods here and cutting off branches or sticks or whatever they did with it. Would they think, would we think, oh, they are taking us off, you know, or cart? No, because clearly that doesn't belong to us. It's not ourselves. So too, bhikkhus, and this is where the practice is so profound. So too, bhikkhus, form, rupa, the material elements, is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Volitional formations are not yours. 
consciousness is not yours, abandon them. Again, meaning let go of attachment to them. What you have abandoned, what is not yours, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So this is the context for all the practice we do, whatever particular method or technique you, know, you may be using in your practice. The underlying context for all of this, does it serve and enhance the right view of non-self? So we, we need to look at what we're doing. Now, in whatever practice we're doing, are we coming to understand each of these aggregates in turn? Not I, not mine, not myself. <clears throat> so we can approach this understanding of selflessness experientially, and that's where the transformation takes place, you know, because we can, we can understand it conceptually, but we have to actually experience it. So we can approach this understanding, this realization of selflessness most easily through refining our awareness of the impermanence, the changing nature of the five aggregates. And remember, this model, which can sound of the five aggregates, and for years, both in my practice and in my study, my eyes would glaze over when I read about the aggregates. Because at that time I was just saying, yeah, this is the Buddhist, this is the Buddhist intellectual framework. And it wasn't connecting. And it was only much later in my practice that I understood this is not primarily about creating an intellectual framework. The, the Buddha is actually giving us instructions about what to do. You know, and that's when these teachings about the five aggregates, which appear on almost every page of the discourses. I mean, it's, it's the most common framework that the Buddha used. When we actually start to begin our practice of looking directly at it, that's when we begin to see the profundity of these teachings. So we can explore this experientially in different ways. And I'll just share with you a few of the ways that I've done it, and you might explore you know, your own particular way of investigating them. But you might spend some time focusing on just one particular aggregate, you know, for, for a period of time. And it doesn't have to be long, it can be, you know, even a short period of time, but sustained, so that we become familiar with the nature of that particular aggregate. So, for example, we could determine, okay, for the next period of time, I'm going to focus my attention just on the first aggregate of rupa, the material elements. This is the first foundation of mindfulness, you know, of the body. And so we might do it 
really by focusing on the sensations of the breath or the postures or our daily activities, where we really make the body, the material elements, or it might be the elements, the earth, air, fire, water element, and whichever way you choose to make that aggregate the object of your mindfulness for some time until you really begin to understand, oh yes, this is what materiality means. This is the experience of it. There's a story of one monk, and I love this story. He made the resolve that whenever he did any activity unmindfully, he would go back and do it again. You know, so, you know, he took five steps unmindfully. Okay, go back, take them again. He did this for 20 years, and he became an arhant, fully enlightened. So maybe you don't want to take this on for 20 years, but it might be an interesting experiment. I mean, this, this is one way of paying attention to the aggregate, the physical elements of, of the body. Okay, if I realize I've done something unmindfully, just go back and do it again. Even if you do it for half an hour. You know, just, just as an experiment, what would, what would that be like? And would it enhance the quality of the attention to the body, to, to these physical elements. And you might spend some time just focusing on feelings, Vedana. You know, just moment after moment, tuning into whether you're tasting whatever the experience is, you know, whether it's associated with the body or the mind, but you're focusing on whether you're tasting that particular experience as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And so you're just watching. Oh, pleasant, 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 unpleasant, unpleasant, pleasant. You know, and, and you're focusing all of your attention on this particular aggregate. What becomes very obvious in doing this, but is not so obvious if we don't do it, is how changeable these feelings are. You know, these experiences of things being pleasant or unpleasant. And I've just noticed, you know, in my own practice, I can be doing walking meditation and maybe I experience, you know, a sensation in the body that some pain that I'm feeling is unpleasant. If I'm not particularly mindful in that moment of the unpleasantness, in a moment, the mind can create a whole story about that unpleasant feeling. Oh, my leg hurts. Oh, this is going to get worse. Oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to walk. Do I need to see a doctor? I just a whole big story. And it's missing how that feeling, that unpleasant feeling, it arises and it passes. And it may come again many times. But in each moment, we can see its ephemeral nature. You know, when we're paying attention, we don't build this whole story around it. 
And of course, a lot of the story we build around it is the story of self, of I. So paying attention, just taking some time, you know, to focus on this quality of Vedana and seeing the momentariness, seeing the ephemeral nature of it is very powerful. We can pay particular attention to perceptions, the third aggregate, which is the recognition and interpretation of experience. This one is extremely interesting because how we perceive things strongly conditions both our feelings and also mental formations. So, for example, you're, maybe you're walking, taking a walk on the road, and you see some animal that's been run over and squashed, and, you know, it's, maybe we feel revulsion. And then a vulture is flying overhead, sees the same thing. Mmm, good meal. Very different perception with very different attendant consequences. Now, what I find interesting about this is it undercuts our very strong belief that our perceptions are reflective of some underlying reality. Oh, that we're really seeing things as being how they are. Instead of seeing that our perceptions are totally conditioned by the nature of our sense organs. You know, if our sense organs were organized in a different way, we would be seeing a completely different reality. Or if we are looking through a high power microscope, our ordinary perceptions be completely gone. We'd be seeing a completely different reality. So what is the actual reality? So here it gets a little trippy, which I love. (laughs) That there is no essential reality in our perceptions. It's all conditioned. I don't know, I'll just leave it at that, but it's, it's... It can really help us let go of our attachment to the way we perceive things, realizing that it is conditioned. So one thing that I found really helpful, and a simple thing, but it it changed something. Um, Oh, you know, I've mentioned in the hall to include seeing. You know, this is a very predominant sense field that usually goes, uh, we're not usually mindful of the fact that we're seeing. So at one point, as I was including this sense field in my practice, instead of noting it as seeing, I started noting it as perceiving. So I just changed the note. But it was very interesting, the difference in my mind, in how I understood what was happening. So anyway, you you can try and see if it does anything for you. It just somehow weakened the attachment to the belief in the reality 
of what I was, of what was being seen and realize, yeah, this is just the process of perceiving, which is a very conditioned phenomena. I guess I have to say at this point, this is the stuff that my mind loves. But I realize that not every, every mind does love this. <laughs> so if it feels confusing or it feels, what's he talking about? Uh, you can just leave these little, you know, asides aside. We can practice, okay, so we can practice a sustained mindfulness of the body and the physical elements of feel the feeling of things being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, of perceptions. We can also give some sustained attention to the aggregate of mental formations. You know, all the thoughts and moods and emotions and mind states. And when we do that, when we're really just focusing on the mind, you know, as it's conditioned by all of these things, focusing on the thoughts or on the mind states or moods, we can begin to see all of them too as not I, not mine, not myself. All of the thoughts, all of the moods, all of the mind states are also arising out of particular conditions, just like perceptions. And they arise and pass away when the conditions change. Now what's so interesting about our lives is that although you know these moods and emotions and mind states that we experience seem so important when we're lost in them when we're identified with them they seem to constitute the real me right i'm i'm the one who's feeling this and thinking this so there's this strong investment in them when we're lost in them. But as soon as we become mindful of this aggregate, of this fourth aggregate of mental formations and see all of these mental formations, they're just arising out of conditions, passing away, just like clouds form in the sky and then dissipate as the conditions change. So just reflect, you know, maybe this morning or yesterday, did you have some big mind drama, you know, that you were really caught up in? Where is it now? You know, in the time of being caught up in it, it feels like it's just the most important thing and it conditions so much of how we feel and think about ourselves. And yet, as soon as we come out from being lost in it, or as soon as it changes into something else, we see it's so ephemeral. So based on right view, letting go of attachment to what doesn't belong to us, we can practice, and this is our practice, not being seduced again and again by what the Buddha called the terrible bait of the world, which is really the five aggregates. They're going to still be happening. It's not that they disappear, 
but we can stop clinging to them as being I or mine. And on the most subtle level, we cut through the identification or attachment to the fifth aggregate, which is consciousness. And this is a place where even as we see you know, other things as being impermanent, not self, it's so easy to make a nest in consciousness. You know, This is where the self finds a home. Instead of seeing that consciousness too is a rising, passing, conditioned. So the, the last part of what the Buddha uh, said, you know, in that example of the dog running and revolving around the post, and how we do that with the aggregates, that's the uninstructed, uh, the uninstructed worldling does that. But then he says, but the instructed noble disciple, so that's us, the instructed noble disciples do not regard form as self, nor feeling as self, nor perception as self, nor mental formations as self, nor consciousness as self. They no longer keep running and revolving around them. As they no longer keep running around them, they are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, freed from suffering. It's very direct teachings of how to free the mind from dukkha. Okay, so there's one other way of investigating the aggregates, which I also found uh, tremendously illuminating. And that is taking some period of time where instead of focusing on a particular aggregate, just to explore its specific nature and how it's in constant change, this was a more open kind of awareness where I would just focus on whatever aggregate in, in the moment was most predominant. Of course, they're always all there, but in different moments, one or another will be in the foreground. And just seeing the interplay of these. So I'll, I'll just give you an example. So I was walking outside, and you know, you might experiment with this, and just very simply feeling the sensation of the movement of walking. You know, feeling the lightness, the heaviness, the hardness of the touch. Okay, so in that experience, that's the experience of the first aggregate, the material elements. That's what was predominant. And then maybe felt the warmth of the sun. So the warmth is again the first aggregate of physical sensation. And then noticing at that time the warmth of the sun felt pleasant. You know, maybe if it's too hot it feels unpleasant. But in that moment of Rec oh, yeah, this is pleasant, or this is unpleasant. We recognize that as the second aggregate. This is the aggregate of feeling, you know, of Vedana. And we see it. We see it arising and passing away. It's there for a few moments, and then maybe it goes back to the awareness of the physical aggregates, to the next touch sensation. And then we hear a sound. 
and maybe recognize it as a bird song. Or we see something and we recognize it as a person or a building or a tree. So in that moment of recognition, we hear a sound and we recognize, oh, bird. Whether we actually think the word bird or not doesn't matter, but we recognize it. You know, oh, the song of a bird or building or tree or person. That's a moment of perception. That's when perception is predominant. And then we might feel gladdened by the sound of the bird. You know, we recognize the bird, perception, and then, oh, it makes us feel happy. Or we see a person and maybe we feel judgmental. Those are mental formations. And so we recognize, oh, this is the aggregate of formations. And to realize in each of these, not I, not self, not mine, it's just, you know, a physical sensation, a feeling, a vedana, a pleasant, unpleasant, a perception, a formation. And then sometimes we're simply resting primarily in the knowing of it all, that the knowing may be predominant for some time. So that's the awareness of consciousness. So there's no particular order in which these happen. You know, and that's what was kind of interesting and engaging in the practice of it, even for a short time, do it for 10 minutes you know, or whatever. We're, you're just paying attention, okay, which one is predominant in this moment? And there were a few startling understandings that came from doing that, even for short periods of time. One was that there is nothing apart from the arrogance. That's all there is in our experience. So that was amazing to me. You know, and that the Buddha could craft a way of understanding all of experience. Nothing was left out. And then to see that all of our experience which we generally solidify into the idea of self, is nothing more than this dance of the different aggregates. Oh, feelings, material elements, perceptions. It, it was such an amazing shift of understanding what was actually going on moment to moment. You know? And in that understanding of it free from the notion of self, of I, in that there was no attachment, no clinging. And so there was even just a, a glimmer of a taste of freedom. It's just a kaleidoscope, you know, of constantly changing experience, which can be understood in terms of one or another of the aggregates. So again, whatever is not yours, abandon it, abandon the attachment to it. This will be for our welfare, for our happiness, for our well-being. So in one bit discourse, the Buddha said, there are two conditions for the arising of right view. Everything we've been talking about. Two conditions for the arising of right view. 
the voice of another and wise attention. So for the last hour you've been hearing the voice of another. The wise attention is up to you. And the beauty of this place is there's nothing else you have to do. Your whole day can be devoted to the exploration, the investigation of these very profound and transforming truths. Thanks everybody for listening to Joseph Goldstein's Insight Hour. We appreciate your support and ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash joseph and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which MindPod and Joseph will receive a small percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.